Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the What's Important Now podcast. Chief Ryan Landrum coming to you from the U.S. Border Patrol Academy in Artesia, New Mexico. This is the third episode of season two. Chief Jason Owens concluded season one a few episodes ago. I've picked up the mantle, carrying the, the win podcast forward. I've had the opportunity to speak to an executive at in the National Capital Region, had the opportunity to speak to a chief on the southern border, and today have my very first guest from the northern border, Chief of the Grand Fork Sector, Anthony Scott Good. Welcome, Chief. Thanks, Chief. It's the uh, first time doing a podcast. First time being in a fancy room like this with all the sound equipment. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Um, Chief Owens did a fantastic job of modernizing uh, the way we are able to communicate and the platforms and, and setting this thing up um, and really gives folks like you, Chief on our Northern Border, uh, a voice to, to talk to your story and also to, uh, to talk to the people of Grand Forks in a different way. Great. Appreciate it. So before we get into it, I'd like to uh, just kind of give you a little background uh, on Chief Good. So Chief Good entered on duty with the U.S. Border Patrol in 2001 as a member of Class 466 and EOD in the Calexico Station in the El Centro sector. So, Chief, I have to ask you, do you remember your class chant? Man, the hardest question's right up front, huh? <laughs> uh, 466, there is none better. 466, the standard setter. That's a, that's a good one. And, yeah. you know, we talk about this often, like, you know, the Border Patrol is a big family, and there's certain things along the way, and you kind of talked about this in the graduation ceremony this morning with the class 1179, but there's things that you know, people that you never forget, and there's things that you never forget. And for some reason, maybe we say it so many times over the course of the five or six months that we spend in the academy, you just never forget the chant. Yeah. yeah. So you start off at Calexico. How was, uh, how was Calexico circa 2001? Uh, it was... It, High, high adventure, you know, it's just, uh, you know, migrants running everywhere. Um, uh, there was some drug traffic, not as much as I'd seen, you know, later in Ajo and different places, but, uh, right. and just the, the migration, illegal migration into the United States, there was just, you know, just a lot at the time. And so it was a great place to, to, uh, start your career and, and learn all the things sometimes, learn things the hard way, but, you know, you, you learn a lot. And when you're put in a high, high risk environment like that. Yeah. So interesting enough, you, you talk about, you mentioned Ajo and we're going to get into that. You go to Ajo, you go to Laredo, you spend a lot of time kind of combing the Southwest border in different leadership positions. Um, but if you look back in terms of history, um, we talk a lot about the flow of migration um, inward in the United States. So do you remember the the demographic of migrants that you were generally encountering in the field in El Centro circa 2001? Yeah, it was typically Mexican. Yeah. Uh, every once in a while, there'd be a large group of Brazilian and then right. the trainees, you know, me would have to yeah. go, you know, process or whatever, but uh, typically it was, it was Mexican. Yeah. yeah. So when he mentions being a trainee, um, when he and I came in and, and many of the predecessors that we've had, uh, our environment as new agents is we were first in the door and we were last out of the door. So anything that had to be processed, anything that had to be taken care of from, you know, again, processing migrants to washing the vehicle, making sure it had gas. Uh, we were the first ones to volunteer for those assignments um, because 
you know, we wanted to keep our jobs. You know, we, we, we could not probably believe that we were being paid to do this, this type of work. Um, you know, basically go out and play hide and go seek, if you will, <laughs> back in, back in those days. Um, but it, it, it speaks to the, the character of a board Trojan over time. We just volunteer to do the jobs that nobody else wants to do. And that starts from almost day one when you get out of board Patrol Academy. Yeah, very true. So you also, and kind of going back, the, the demographic, are you familiar with the demographic going through uh, the essential sector now? Or just generally on the southwest border? It's, it's oh, just the other than Mexican. It's just, right. I mean, it's, it's uh, just surprising. I mean, it's, you know, they see it so much now, but like just countries, Venezuela, Cuba, like just so many different nationalities. Just it's it's amazing. I mean, to to see the, the, the way it's changed, the demographic that migrating into the United States. So I had the same experience. It was predominantly uh, folks from Mexico and even more so people from right on the border. This was in El Paso 2000 when I came in. It was predominantly Mexicans from Ciudad Juarez that were coming across the border and you know we'd catch them, return them immediately and we might catch them three or four times, five times a night and just play that, that kind of back and forth game all night with them. But over time, migration patterns shift. And this plays out all over the southwest border, potentially even the northern border. We even get, some might be surprised, we get you know Mexicans that enter illegally from Canada, yes. right? Which may, maybe you can illuminate uh, for us a little bit later on. But uh, the job generally doesn't change. We still do the same job. The folks we encounter, how we process those folks now, those types of things ebb and flow with policy changes. But um, generally, the 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 uh, answering the the age old question of who came in last night and how many people did you catch uh, kind of remains the same. So moving on, you also then promote. You start promoting at this point. I think this is about two thousand and six or so. You start promoting to a supervisory border patrol agent at the Blythe Station in Yuma. Yuma is the westernmost sector in Arizona, and just to the east of your former sector, El Centro. Right. So how so you're five or so years in now, and you become a first line supervisor in a whole new sector at a whole new station. Tell me about that. Uh, what a learning curve that was. <laughs> um, you know, it's a little bit of animosity. I was a little younger than a lot of, uh, you know. But you know, when you look at being a soup, you know, there was it was at a time when there wasn't a lot of people putting in for a supervisor, and you know, there was, uh, you know, there was, I think several people that got the position that were offered the position before me and turned it down. So, you know, I, I got it through attrition on at that point. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, proud to do it. I worked hard, um, you know, and, and so when you're kind of younger like that, you, 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 you have something to prove. Right. And so, uh, just, you know, still, you know, not a trainee anymore, but I'm still first one in last one out, yeah. making sure that the mission gets done. Uh, making sure that I'm taking care of the people, you know, it's the first time where I'm in a leadership role where, you know, it's not, I'm not just taking care of myself anymore. I'm taking care of others. Yeah, It's um, a critical role. Yeah, absolutely. So interestingly enough, um, kind of a, a sidebar on this, but you promote to a different station, right? So there, there's stories throughout time and there's nothing wrong with either path. But many folks will promote from a border patrol agent to a supervisory border patrol agent, which is a first line supervisor, uh, and then within the same station. And then you have to start supervising your former peers literally overnight from one day to the next. 
you took the path, uh, as did I, where you went somewhere else. Do you have a sense of, you know, which one might be the better path uh, or which one you might recommend for somebody who might be listening and trying to make that leap from a border patrol agent to a supervisory border patrol agent? I would always say go to somewhere else, right? Um, you know, just as a learning experience and to be able to grow as a leader, to be able to have, uh, you know, to step out of that tunnel vision of, of looking, you know, this is the way it was in Calexico. Well, it's completely different in Blythe, and it's completely different anywhere you go on the border. Somebody asked me, what's the border like? Well, what, what part of the border are we talking about? Um, and, you know, it would be great to to have been a supervisor where all my friends are and, you know, that kind of thing. But there's, you know, there's, I think I avoided some expectations of not necessarily nepotism, but, you know, like helping a friend out, that kind of thing where maybe I'm taking favoritism or something like that, you know, and, and to be a good leader, you've got to be above reproach and, and, and really just being as fair as possible to the workforce. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I often give that same advice. It's my own experience as well. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it. Like if you want to be a border patrol agent and a, su- a supervisor in the same station, it can be done and you can do it very well. Um, but generally speaking, I think it's more advantageous for the new supervisor, for you learning. Um, and the, the other issue, it's more advantageous for both sets of former peers and now your new subordinates. Uh, it's both paths are just fine. But if you get the opportunity, I would highly recommend considering at a minimum, going from a board patrol agent to a supervisor at a different station. That being said, promotion within station is a little less hard to do because now you've already spent time in that leader role, right? Critical role, first line supervisor, you're kind of that go between between station management and and the field. So you kind of get it from all different ways. So making a jump to a field operation supervisor, what we now call a watch commander position at the same station, maybe a little less hard to do. And that's exactly what you did uh, at the Blythe station directly after becoming a supervisor there, you become uh, an FOS at the, right. at the Blythe station. How was that jump? Uh, pretty easy transition. Um, when I got to Blythe, there was probably 38 people. I was probably number 38, right? And yeah. so it was a very small station. Uh, and then the station grew in manpower quickly and you know got up to like 130 people. And so... Uh, you know, as a supervisor, I was kind of in charge of a shift by myself anyway, right? And so then when the, F, you know, with more manpower came more positions being come available, the FOS position. And so I just kind of fell into that position. I was already kind of doing that as I progressed through. Yeah, you hit on something, uh, you know, Chief Owens and I talked about it in my pa- podcast as well. But the the don't underestimate the exponential growth that this organization experienced in times where um, folks like you and I were first liners, second liners, maybe third liners, and just having to grow on the fly. There was no book for the Border Patrol on how to lead mass amounts of Border Patrol agents. I think, I think you know, every station has this story. I, I went to, uh, I left here as a CDI, I went to Eagle Pass South as a, as a supervisor, and it, it literally was a brand new station. Laredo West when I was there a brand new station. So over time, we've gained these experiences on how to do this. But back in the day, there was no textbook. <laughs> we just kind of jumped in and, you know, you became the, the tenured soup, natural progression of the FOS position. Now you're second, you know, second line command um, at, at a station. And it, it opens up an opportunity for you to become a special operations supervisor at the dimming station in the El Paso sector. So now you're working your way west. You start off on the far, let's call it almost the west coast, 
moving to Yuma, you skip Tucson for now. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come back to Tucson. Yeah. And then you hit uh, the El Paso sector at the dimming station as an SOS. What is it? I don't think we've talked about the SOS position very much. What does an SOS do at the dimming station? So it was, it was a little different back then, the way the positions were. It was kind of really third in command of the station at that time. You know, you had your pack and your APAC and then your, your SOS. Um, you know, more of a administrative programs over programs over the administrative pieces, uh, but um, you know, day to day operational things would still fall to an APAC. But I think you know, just I think the easiest way to say administrative and programmatic functions yeah. are kind of what the SOS did. So is it fair to say you're starting to learn the the business of leading a station? Yes. So you're not in charge. You're not making shots. But at the same time, a lot of things are being tasked to you. Uh, you're privy to a lot of conversations on how to manage a station. We're going through exponential growth. I think dimming was probably growing pretty pretty wildly at that point too. Um, and so you're, you're learning how to manage a station. It was very different from the operational side, right? Oh. So supervisor, FOS, or watch commander now, right? And then, and then switching over to the is administrative side, the programmatic side, there's just things that you would never really think about or, you know, you just, you just make it happen. You know, we were talking about, um, you know, there's really no book for this, right? That, well, you know, when you're brand new at the station in Blythe or you're brand new at the station as an SOS in Deming, there's just, there's challenges. And, and I, um, I don't think we're ever completely prepared for the next thing. We just go and we make it successful, which is part of what the Border Patrol does <laughs> anyway, right. right? We just... Yeah. We, you know, every day we just make it happen. You know, that's part of our tradition. We just, we find our way to yes. So that, that's a great point. I think that um, an additional cautionary tale as it relates from transitioning from supervisor to watch commander, you, you kind of hit on it with operational. You're in the field. You're the, you know, for all intents and purposes, you're the patrol agent in charge of a, of a unit as an FOS or a watch commander back in the day. And then you go to SOS and this is where you start getting away from the field a little bit. Yep. So a part of the maturation of a leader in the organization uh, also comes with a cautionary tale of you're separated from the field now. So you signed on to be a, a Border Patrol agent. You love the outdoors, whatever, you know, whatever brought you into the Border Patrol. You start getting away from that a little bit. Is that true? Yeah. So while at Dimming, you also have the opportunity to attend the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. This is in Leavenworth? Yep. Right. So you, you get the opportunity as a GS-13 SOS 12, 13 years ago now, um, which is extremely fast, by the way. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, extremely fast within our career, I should say. Uh, traditionally within our, within our careers, uh, progression naturally. So you go to the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, and you get a, a master degree or master of science degree in Homeland Security Studies. What was your experience like there? Uh, you know, it was fun to be back in the Army for a year. <laughs> uh, just, you know, really focusing on leadership and, and you know, that, that college was very centralized on, on leadership. Um, it certainly made me a better leader uh, and to kind of reflect on a lot of scenarios and things and, and, and how can I self-improve and make the organization better. Um, and then, you know, just getting the message out there, there, you know, it was, it was eye-opening to see how many people within DOD didn't know what the Border Patrol really stood for or what we do. Uh, so it was great to be a guest and, and to do that, uh, you know, to, you know, 
tout the great things that our agency does. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, I've hosted, obviously, I've been to the U.S. Army War College. We talked we've talked about that before in the podcast. Um, I've also hosted several folks who have uh, gone through DOD sponsored schools. Chief Owens was a product of that. Myself, Chief Landrum, who, Carl Landrum, who was here previously, you, uh, and many many others. Um, education is not a requirement in our organization. There's nothing like when you sign up for a job, there's no requirement to have a bachelor's or master's or any, any other kind of degree, but it does lend itself to leader development. Just like you said, I think it's perfectly said. So obviously I continue to encourage uh, aspiring leaders, up and coming leaders to, if you don't have a, a bachelor's degree, at least get that. We, we get paid uh, very nicely for the job that we do and it affords us opportunities like paying for an education. When you get the opportunity to apply for uh, DOD sponsored schools within DHS family, also encourage you to do that. But I also don't want to focus solely on, you know, the DOD model, right? There are plenty of examples of folks out there who have attended other academic institutions and gotten their bachelor's or master's degrees uh, on their own. And that's a perfectly acceptable route too. Not everybody can be sent to a DOD school. Um, it's a very nice thing to, to, to have that opportunity. You, you know, some folks kind of characterize it as, well, you took a year off. I disagree. You didn't take a year off. You had an opportunity to step back from the fight for a minute. You had the opportunity to think long and big about the organization, the future of the organization, the people of the organization. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't do those same things in other uh, academic arenas. So Chief McGoffin, we talked, we, uh, we both uh, led under Chief McGoffin. He was yep. my PAIC in Freer. He was your chief in Harvard, which we'll get to in a minute. He's a prime example. He didn't go to a DOD school, but he, he took the opportunity to get a, a master's degree on, on his own through through Gonzaga, I believe. Yep. Uh, deputy, deputy of the Border Patrol Chief Hudak, same thing, Gonzaga as well. Um, these are just, it's just, just an illustration that education is not required, but at the same time, it will, you know, kind of polish off any any edges that you might have. But at the same time, you get the opportunity to tell the story of the U.S. Border Patrol to a whole new audience who may not know anything about it. Right. And I think it, it leads to whether it's on the civilian side or DOD or wherever you get your, your yeah. higher level education, mm-hmm. uh, it it's, it's just goes a step further to make our organization known as a professional organization, yeah. right? And so when we're sitting at a table with, uh, you know, decision makers from all the different agencies and you hear the doctor at this and there's doctor at that, you know, you want to have some credibility at the table for our agency as well. And I think that it does that. Um, you know, I'm so proud of, you know, the civilian schools. I'm just so proud of, you know, I'll give that advice of, you know, given uh, that advice, just, you know, go to college, get yeah. that, get that degree. If you have an associate, get that bachelor's, you got a bachelor's, get that, that master's degree. And uh, there's a few in my head right now that have recently gotten their bachelor degrees and are already working on their master's. Uh, just, you know, I'm just super proud of them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I give that exact same advice and uh, I'm, I'm almost more proud of them. I don't want to say that out loud, but almost more proud when they, when they take the advice because this is how I got my bachelor's, right? Yeah. Somebody sat me down literally in the same office that I hold right now, the exact same office and said, you know, I recommend highly that you go get an education, right? So I listened and it, it paid off for me. And so for people to take your advice and, and educate themselves, it's, it, it's a proud moment as well. 
So yeah. kudos to them for their accomplishment, but it kind of makes you proud too. Yeah. Um, so you kind of talk about uh, having uh, some credibility. Um, you take that master's and then you walk up into the, uh, the strategic atmosphere uh, with that credibility in your back pocket and you become an assistant chief in the planning division at U.S. Border Patrol headquarters after the SOS of Deming. How was that? Uh, you know, they're, you know, after every position you're going to ask about, I'm going to say it was fun. You know, I make the best, <laughs> I make the best of everywhere I go. Uh, but DC, it was great. I got to, you know, help author the, uh, 2012 to 2016 oh. or strategic plan. Yeah. Uh, you know, the counter narcotics enforcement plans for the Northern and Southwest borders and, uh, you know, some DOD liaison work and, uh, you know, it's to, see things at a national level is incredible. You know, yeah. it's just, uh, the, the mission there is just great, you know, and then that's one of those positions that I, you know, I recommend to everybody that, you know, you gotta, you gotta go up there and do it. And it's not just to check a box, it's to get rid of that tunnel vision that I talked about before and to, to be a part of that national mission. I mean, just, you know, you know, nationally, there's, there's so many different things going on around the nation and to be able to, to yeah. see a, a, a broader picture of that, it, it's, it's, it's fun. Absolutely. The, the exposure at, at the national level uh, cannot be uh, underestimated for, any, for anybody or for any stretch of the imagination. So, so the planning division is within what director at headquarters this time? SPAD or SPA. You know. SPA. So we, we talk a lot about the four directorates. We have Mission Support Division. We have Law Enforcement Operations. We have uh, stra- Strategy and Policy. Um, and we have uh, the what we call PMOD, which is the programmatic management of all the things that we have. So you go up there and you kind of experience all these things. And um, then it takes you to, you get rewarded. (laughs) (laughs) You get rewarded for all your hard work and dedication at the headquarters level. And you pick up a uh, deputy patrol agent in charge, the number two in charge of a station at the Ajo Border Patrol Station in Arizona. So we're circling back west again, going to Ajo. Tell me about Aho. You, you know, my wife included. You know, I, I just got married uh, at the time when we went when we went to Aho and started there, started our marriage together there, and uh, you know, by then she's already friends with a lot of PA wives and that kind of thing. And everybody's saying, "Oh, Aho's so terrible. It's middle of nowhere. It gets a bad rap. You know, it's, it's just going to wreck your marriage yeah. and all these things." And and we got there, and again, we made the best out of it. And I mean, yeah. she's got one of her best friends is from there. Uh, you know, just constantly you know the mountain biking and the, the hiking and the, the hunting and all the different things that you can do you know anywhere you go uh you know as a family we just had an absolute blast mm-hmm. uh but work-wise um you know it was it, you know it was we were it was funny you mentioned rgc right uh there was a couple of years there where uh we were neck to neck on who had the most uh marijuana seizures yep. in a year and i think yeah. uh you know, there was one year where we had more than anybody else in the nation. We had 360,000 pounds of marijuana. And then the following year, RGC got 363,000 pounds yeah. of marijuana in a year. So it was like neck to neck between the two stations. And it was, you know, across the country, right? So here I am in Ajo, Arizona. You're over in Texas right. in RGC. And, and just, you know, so everything you experienced with, you know, the dope there is it's different terrain though, right? So oh, yeah. I, I spent time in Laredo, so I know what the, what the train's like in RGC. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in, in Ajo, to me, it's more, looks more like Afghanistan, right? I mean, it's just, it's very, uh, it's very dry, mountainous. You've got scouts on every mountain out there constantly, you know, 
uh, kudos to the agents. I mean, they work so hard in, in both environments, right? But but there, and, and I just, you know, day in, day out, I mean, you couldn't find a, a group of harder working PAs out there just 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 giving it their all, hiking up and down these mountains and catching smugglers and scouts and, you know, just, you know, 360,000 pounds of marijuana. I mean, just phenomenal work ethic. Yeah. Uh, really great to see. We talk a lot. Of, so, the, so the RGC mentions is the Rio Grande City Station in South Texas where I was a PIC. He's referencing Ajo where he's the DPAC and eventually becomes the actual PAIC, the patrol agent in charge of the Ajo Station. But uh, for, for the, the non-Border Patrol agent listeners, uh, what he what he what he's talking about is the the Rio Grande City area of operation and the Ajo Tucson sector area of operation traditionally have the highest volume of narcotic seizures uh, year over year after year. The those two stations, without a doubt, lead lead the nation. Um, we we generally we can we can parse it down into different categories. For example, you know which which station and this is a part of a 2012 2016 strategy. You know, which station had the higher um, weight per marijuana seizure, which is also an indicator of risk. So um, we tout these successes, but at the same time, it means we're we're probably getting beat. You know, so if we're catching a quarter, a quarter million, 400,000 uh, pounds of marijuana, uh, it requires uh, a leader to look back and say, why? Right. So we have to understand uh, the entire operational environment. We have to make adjustments and maybe catching, you know, the 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 the, the greatest amount of volume volume of dope is important. But I also don't want to lead the nation like RGC did, <laughs> and the average weight per marijuana seizure. So it just it's an illustration potentially that the adversary that's uh, smuggling that commodity in this situation, marijuana, um, has a high degree of confidence of being successful in that area. So if you get a, a large tonnage and the average of that tonnage is much smaller, maybe you have a better uh, illustration that the, the, the agents are, or, or the environment is, is less conducive to being successful. So they break them up into little groups. So this is just kind of how we assess, uh, have, have assessed risk uh, as it relates to the, the interdiction of narcotics over time. Um, and really not much has changed in terms of which station you know, goes back and forth. But what has changed, if you look at, we talked about demographics up front, about, you know, what were, what were you encountering in El Centro sector circa 2001? Now we're catching a lot more hard narcotics, right? So that's a whole nother um, ball game. It's a lot less volume, does a lot more damage to the American population. And like you say, kudos to the agents throughout their seizing uh, tonnage of, of these hard narcotics on a on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis. Encourage you to to follow other chiefs' uh, social media accounts where they kind of highlight some of these these interdictions and the hard work, highlighting the hard work that the men and women of these sectors are doing to keep uh, not only each other safe but the streets of America safe. So you pick up the actual patrol agent in charge of the Ajo station. Again, you kind of compressed two jobs into one. Uh, a little easier to do again. Uh, again, don't recommend necessarily that that's the path for every single jump in leadership. Broader and deeper is is a good thing. You've obviously demonstrated that. You've gone from you know West Coast. You've worked your way east. You've gone to headquarters. Now you are fully capable of this at this point of being a GS15 PIC of Aho. Uh, any any other thoughts on on the Aho station as the PIC? 
Uh, just more of the same, you know, just, you know, just, just every day, just doing what we can. And, and there's sometimes, you know, it's, you know, your agents out there working hard and sometimes they get hurt, you know? And, and so I can, I remember a few injuries that I was really concerned about keep you up at night, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're having that, that high volume of, of bad people and bad things coming through, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes your agents get hurt and yeah. I, you know, just looking back, you know, as a PIC, you know, you're responsible for those people and their yeah. well-being. So. I, I love that. Thread. I'm so glad you said that because I have these conversations all the time and so I, I, I would like your take on, what keeps you up at night and in the frame of, of a PIC, or maybe we can talk about it a little bit when you, when you start talking about a chief, the weight just feels different, right? So you can be a deputy patrol agent in charge and you can feel a certain weight on your shoulder, shoulder, excuse me. You can be a deputy patrol agent in charge and feel a certain weight on your shoulders of the magnitude of what you're asking people to do, right? So you're literally as the, as the, as the DPAC asking people to go conduct operations literally put their lives on the line to uh, to enact a vision or a strategy to to secure the border translate that over to the 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 difference in weight from being a PAIC so now you're the buck literally stops with you if you come up with an operation and you know it's maybe a high risk operation that 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 you envisioned and you enact in your area of operations and somebody gets hurt somebody gets killed do you feel a difference in the weight and the responsibility when you move from one progressively over time from a supervisor to an FOS to, you know, a DPAC, a PAC, does that weight change? I think it does. You know, it's, it's when you're as a PIC, you know, yeah, I was a DPAC before that, uh, you know, pretty much the same, same things going on. But, Mm -hmm. but when you're the PAC, you're, you're, you're overall responsible. I mean, it it goes to the point of, well, we're, you know, I'm going to, always do what the pack wants as a DPAC, right? I'm always going to do what the pack wants, you know, as long as it's legal, whatever, we're going to get it done. I'll, I'll provide my feedback. At the end of the day, we're going to go on his course, uh, you know, as a pack, you know, a, you know, it's a lot of time for prayer at that point. You know, it's, you're, 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 are you doing the right thing, yeah. you know? And, and, and maybe it speaks to if a decision or an adjustment uh, from an agent standpoint, maybe you feel like it's not moving fast enough or, you think this operation that you recommended from your level as a border patrol agent isn't getting enough traction fast enough, maybe consider all the things that are going through that, that patrol agent in charge's mind. I, you know, you see this this way and you're not wrong, but I also have to see this angle. I have to see this angle. And oh, by the way, there's another angle over here that I have to see. So I'm not saying we're not going to do what, what you think is a good thing to do. And by the way, some of our best ideas operationally or otherwise come from PAs working the field. Absolutely. Right? So we, I've got to listen to them and I'm not going to second judge, second guess their judgment. But at the same time, I have to make sure I'm taking the time necessary when I have that time and space to assess the totality of the, of the decision before we make it. Yeah. As uh, you know, looking back, I probably owe a few of my leaders <laughs> uh, some apologies, you know, thinking that, that me both. I, you know, that I could have made a better decision in certain points, but they have, you know, we have, uh, you know, this kind of umbrella, right? And, and you just, you, you understand more about, you know, you've got pressures from, you know, the public and from the media and from, from headquarters or from, you know, not just headquarters, but like DHS, CBP. The PIC has that understanding where, you know, you know, further down, there's just that understanding's not there. 
which is goes back to, hey, we want you to move around so you can see other things and see that this is not the, you know, the tunnel vision that we see because we've always done it this way in Calexico. doesn't mean that Calexico has to do it this way. You know, right. you, you, you take what you've learned here and you move it together. You take the good with you right. and, and the bad and, and know, okay, I don't want to do that because that turned out bad. You know, right. I made plenty of mistakes, but, you know, we'll, we'll learn from them. And yeah, we just we fail, fail fast and don't repeat them. Yep. Right? So now you've got, you talked about this kind of collective experience over time, and it takes you to the Laredo sector as a division chief. Tell me a little bit about the job of a division chief. What does a division chief do? I think you were a division chief of both over ops programs, operational programs, as well as the division chief of operations for the Laredo sector. So you've made yourself all the way down to South Texas now. So tell me, what, tell me a little about what the job of a division chief does and, and your experience there. So I, I would say certainly much more administrative. I mean, at this point, uh, the PICs are the commanders in the field, right? They're they're running their stations. You're you're kind of that buffer between, or that intermediary between the chief, deputy chief, and the field, right? And so um, making sure that the the strategic vision from headquarters, the operational vision from sector, is is carrying being carried out at the station level, but you're there for support, right? You're, you know, there's, there's lots of support needed from a PIC from each station, you know, conflicting interests, uh, you know, uh, every, every station has needs. And so, you know, meeting those needs is, is a big piece of it, but also, uh, you know, t- lots of administrative stuff, especially on a programmatic side, right? Um, you know, anywhere from facilities to, uh, you know, technology to, you know, the canine program. And then, you know, uh, some things just that kind of bleed together. You know, you may be the ops division chief, but you've got the programs division chief over canines. And, you know, that's that's an operational thing. You know, horses are an operational thing, but they're, it's a programmatic thing as well because you have to feed horses. You have to, you know, make sure that there's the appropriate amount of horses and, and trained horse wranglers, you know, and, and the list goes on. Um, but, policy compliance. Yeah, policy compliance, absolutely, all of those things. And so there's uh, – uh, you know, in a big sector like Laredo, it's 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 a lot, but you know, it's a, it's a lot of fun. You meet a lot of people, you do a lot of things. Stakeholder engagement is is just as important at the sector level as it is at the at the PIC or at the station level. Um, so a lot of that. But uh, great positions, and uh, I spent a lot of time as the acting deputy chief, as, as opposed to acting or to being division chief of operations. At the time, I was uh, most of the time. In that billet, I was actually the acting deputy chief in Laredo. Right, yeah. So whenever we have uh, leadership voids in a sector or at headquarters, uh, we don't just magically produce more Border Patrol agents. And every other sector's personnel are busy taking care of the day-to-day functions or the uh, administration of, of uh, the vision and the operations of the vision for, of the chief. Um, so we tend to you know, kind of colloquially referred to as take it out of hide. And the the division chief or the, maybe the next senior person at the GS-15 level is asked to uh, act uh, or serve temporarily in a position of greater responsibility because that's probably all we have available to us. Nobody's offering more people up to, to Laredo sector just because they, they feel sorry for you. We just kind of do it organically within ourselves. And it's it's sometimes a stretch for people, but at the same time, it's, it's a learning and leader development opportunity for everybody. So when you get that opportunity, maximize the opportunity to, and we act at all different kinds of levels. So Border Patrol acts, 
Border Patrol agents act as supervisors sometimes. Supervisors act as watch commanders sometimes. When you're given those opportunities, maximize those things and work hard within that within that time. And maybe you find that that job's not for you. Maybe you find that, hey, I really like this and I'm pretty darn good at it. Maybe it's something I want to pursue in my career further. I think that's huge for our leadership development is to have those developmental opportunities, right? The, the acting position, I think, is just the best way to put somebody in there and, and, and they learn, you know, and, hey, I really like this. I may do it somewhere else, but, I'm, you know, I've got this experience that uh, may not count for points or something like that, but it gives you an experience and, you know, every day is an interview, right? And so if you're acting in that position, you're much more likely to, people are going to know what you're capable of in that position. Right. So it's funny. I always say this. I don't. I don't know which which job I would want to do less between the two division chiefs. If it's you know the division chief of operational programs, where you have to manage all that whole entirety of uh, the administrative side of running a sector, or be the division chief of operations, and you now have the responsibility of managing, you know, personalities multiplied by the number of stations that you have, and having to make sure that you know everybody's in line with that vision. You talk about you start throwing human element into it, i.e. I. managing the patrol agents in charge, uh, you have to be a pretty good people person <laughs> to uh, to make sure that the work is being done and that the all the operations across an entire sector are, are, in a, are done in alignment with the chief's vision. Yeah, it's hard to describe or quantify the difference between the two, between operations yeah. and programs. Uh, at least on a northern border, you know, you've got uh, you've got your ops division chief, and he's got one XO or executive officer, right? And then you go over to the programmatic side, and you've got the division chief of operations. He's got a couple of SOSs, a lot of border patrol agent uh, BPAPs, the, right. the you know, uh, just you know, m- a lot more manpower to do a lot more stuff, right? Because there's so many you know program, programs, yeah, take, more stuff to do, yeah, more <laughs> stuff to do. It, but it doesn't mean that. The ops guy is not busy, right? right? He just has less, you know, it's just, it's a very, it's hard to quantify or describe yeah. uh, the difference between the two positions. No doubt. So you mentioned the northern border. You're the, currently the chief of Grand Forks, which is in North Dakota. But before that, you leave Laredo sector and you promote to the deputy chief patrol agent of the Haver sector. This is your first experience of North. So let's just say you basically covered all of the southwest border at this point in time pretty right. much. Um, but for a little bit of land there in West Texas, uh, God's country. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then, you you know, now you're going to dip your toes in the northern border a little bit. What was that jump like? Uh, you know, just it was different, um, but a good different. Um, again, one of those things is hard to quantify or describe. But, you know, it's... Uh, the agents have a lot more autonomy. Yeah. You know, they can go out and do a lot more. Stakeholder engagement becomes much more, you know, just like a, a it's not a nice to have, it's a must have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny. Uh, you know, I'd go to the, the musters are, I really like the northern border musters, such a small, small groups of people. Uh, you know, and, and always, always went to the musters on the southwest border, that kind of thing. But just large groups of people, it's hard to kind of, you know, really, you know, have, you know, not personal conversations, but more, more familiar conversations. Uh, you know, and so my first few times in Montana, er, first few musters in Montana, I asked, you know, hey, because I'm an outdoorsman, I love to hunt, uh, always have fishing, hunting, that kind of thing. It's what got me into the patrol, right? Yeah. I mean, just to be outdoors. That story all plays the time. out all over the yeah. place, yeah. And, uh, and it shows, right, with all the border patrol agents that are like that. There's tons of outdoorsmen that are they're outdoorsmen and outdoor women. 
sure. uh, that, that have grit, you know, because they're just outdoor type people. Uh, but I get to Montana and, uh, you know, I ask one of the first thing I'm always passionate and excited about hunting or fishing. And I'm like, Hey, who, who here likes to hunt? And, you know, everybody just looks at me like this weird face. Like, and one, one agent speaks up and says, sir, you're in Montana. We all hunt. <laughs> like, okay. yeah, fair enough. So, uh, definitely with my people. And, yeah. You know, and, and, Let me say uh, a little context real quick before you go on. So the Northern border. Generally speaking, as an organization, we do not send. So I'm here at the Border Patrol Academy. Everybody that I train and I produce for chief patrol agents in the field are all first deployed to the southwest border. There is there was a brief point in our history. This is maybe 10, 12 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, where we kind of piloted a program where we actually sent uh, trainees from the academy directly to stations in the northern border. But our bread is generally buttered on the southwest border. So we use the, everybody on the northern border is a tenured agent, right? So the, the when you say you enjoy a, a muster, they probably, you're probably talking to a whole different crowd. You're talking, you know, the, the least amount of tenure may have more time in than you at this point in time, depending on some of these stations. There's some, there's some tenure up there. And, and, you know, that has to be a completely different environment. Is that your sense as well for the northern border? Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're tenured they're, They, they know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, a lot of, a lot of family people that yeah. went up there to, you know, uh, it is a slower pace. Uh, you know, there's, there's still things to do, plenty of work there, but, um, you know, they'll, they'll go up there, they're, they're experienced they're you know, they know what they're doing. Um, you know, they, they hit the ground running when they get there, they, you know, and, and so though they have less supervision, you know, it's, it's, you know, because we've selected them to take that position up there and, and they're, they're, uh, you know, it's, well, like you said, they're tenured, they know what they're doing. So yeah. it's, it's really no, no, uh, no surprise that, yeah. that it's like that. We talked to, you and I talked a little bit this morning about just my experience in the first six, 60 days of my command and how impressed I am with my staff, how, a, what a joy it is to show up every day in an environment where people literally want to come to work. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right. And I kind of get that same sense generally uh, up north. But for some recent, you know, southwest border deployments that are uh, inarguably unpopular, uh, would you characterize that as the same environment where you, you can kind of set and forget a little bit and you know they're going to go out and work hard? Because this is this may be home for them. This may be the home move. Yep. This may uh, contribute positively to their home environment. They get a little a little more stability, that kind of thing. That's kind of how I've characterized my first 60 days is maybe the biggest surprise is just how energetic and motivated the staff is because I think everybody that I've met so far literally wants to be here. This isn't a, this isn't their first assignment. So they chose to be here. So that, it, there's something to be said for that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, just moving over to the next move in, in, uh, in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Grand Fork sector covers North Dakota, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. Okay. And as I go to those stations, those people are from there, right? Yeah. That's the, they're already their home. They're where they're from. They're happy, uh, and it makes a couple couple of conversations hard, right? If I see, you know, I, I see potential in a lot of people, and you know, encourage them to, hey, you need to go to DC. You need to do this, you know, to to you know, kind of thwart their career. I see, you know, and 
they're not going anywhere. They they're they're happy. They're they're where they're from, which is great, right? We want that that experience uh, and and that um, community engagement. The, the people that are from there, they know the community. The community knows them. They, they mm-hmm. trust, and trust is a big piece of our mission, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, certainly helps to have those. But you know, there's a few out there that I'm like, oh man, if they could, if I could just you know coerce them to to, to go to headquarters yeah. and and do a little more. I mean, they they would be my boss someday. You right? Know? So. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up trust. I think it was uh, the central theme in a couple of conversations you had with 1179 this morning. You talk about not tarnishing the badge, not uh, you know abusing the trust that is naturally going to be given to them as law enforcement officers. You seemed really passionate about that. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's you know we we all worked hard to wear this uniform. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, given the opportunity to wear plain clothes or to wear my uniform, I want to wear my uniform, you know, yeah. and, and uh, I'm proud. Of, I'm proud to be a board patrol agent. There, you know, there's most of us are very proud of this job. We wouldn't be here if we weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that, that's the piece that, you know, there's, we have that piggy bank of goodwill, I think is what yeah, I talked about, right. you know, exactly. and, and so as we, as we go into a community and we do all these great things, you know, not only do we, you know, focus on border security, which is national security. We're, we're protecting the country, but we also do a lot of other things that are, you know, to be a part of the community, whether it's, you know, uh, setting up a recruitment booth at a fair or, you know, reading books to children at a, at a school, you know, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of, a lot of our agents that are coaches yep. to, you know, the, the sports teams, you know, we're delivering babies in the field or, you know, we're rescuing people from burning houses. I mean, all these things happen. I mean, it's just me. I mean, we were talking earlier, you know, Del Rio sector had the uh, life-saving, you know, they, they did CPR on somebody and, and brought them back to life. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's all these good things that we do. Uh, yeah, so I'm very passionate about the great things we do. And so, man, it just really hurts us when somebody does something bad, right? You mm-hmm. know, it's a, whether it's a DUI or or domestic violence, um, you know, or, you know, God forbid, you know, corruption or something yeah. like that. And so, you know, it's, it's important for all of us to kind of look to our left and right and make sure that we're all doing the right things and that we speak up to each other and, and, and you know, keep us, keep each other in check, myself included, like keep me in check, you know, Ryan, give me a call, you know, what, what am I doing wrong here? You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, cause you know, the, Trust is everything, you know. We we swore an oath to protect this country, and you know, you know, people look at the badge and they see a person that they can trust. We have to maintain that. Yeah, I I want to unpack a couple of things there. Number one, the trust, and you kind of talk about this relationship of keeping each other honest. Uh, Chief Owens and I talked about that in my podcast as well. Never underestimate that you are not alone. So no decision has to be made in a vacuum. If you're struggling with something, whether it's personally or professionally, in terms of hey, how do I apply this? I, you know, I'm actually having this problem with you know, my spouse or whatever it is, uh, saying that the U.S. Border Patrol, the, the, the members of the agency or our family, is not a bumper sticker to us. Um, we call on each other. I've called you. I've told Jason I've called him, and I have called, you know. I generally try and get a second or third opinion on a major decision that I'm about to make because it's important. And, 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 oh, by the way, I call people that I trust, you know. Um, so that's one thing. The other piece you mentioned was about just the, the humanitarian aspect of our organization and uh, our chief operating officer at CBP, Customs and Border Protection, uh, the acting chief officer, Kari Huffman, who is a, a chief in the U.S. Border Patrol by title, 
kind of most tenured, one of the most tenured board of trustees that we have, is on this campaign of CBP is the most humanitarian law enforcement agency in the world, and we have the stats to prove it. But you hit on something for me that I don't think we 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 necessarily calculate in that statistic is all the things we do outside of work. Yeah. Right. So how many how many stories do we have where border patrol agents have saved a life in a, in a synagogue? at a Walmart in, in West Texas, these types of things, where we we run to uh, the sound of gunfire 24-7, no matter if we're on or off duty. So when we when you ask that 1179 to raise their right hand this morning and swear an oath, you didn't ask them to swear an oath for 10 hours a day, five days a week, and take, take Saturday and Sunday off. You asked them to swear an oath to the Constitution, to the people of this nation without purpose of evasion, right? But that was a 24-7 commitment. So to say that we are the most humanitarian law enforcement organization in the world is true, plus add on and off duty to that. I think you hit, you hit on that for me, and I, I think we, we, uh, we underestimate the value we bring to the communities in which we protect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that, that professionalism on and off duty, and then it, the, everything else is just... But, it, you know, like I was telling some media folks the other day that, you know, in, in FY20, we rescued over 12,000 people nationwide. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's incredible. You know, just the other day, we rescued a couple of folks or seven people from hypothermia yeah. crossing the border at negative 29 degrees Fahrenheit wind chill. Hang on, hang on. So you're telling me on the northern border, people are crossing the border in the dead of night and it's negative 30 degrees and you guys are still out there on patrol? Yeah, exactly, right? We're out there, you know, and that's vigilance, right? So one of our core values and, and you know, just, you know, so proud of our agents again, just the hard work, you know, wherever I go, it's just agents are just working so hard. Yeah. They're out there and it was compl- it was a blizzard. I, I think I even mentioned it on a call that, hey, we're having a blizzard and then, right. and then we, and then this happened. Yeah. Uh, and so it was complete whiteout conditions because there's snow on the ground. It wasn't actually physically snowing, but the wind was blowing so much you couldn't see from me to you right. because of this. This it was a whiteout. And uh, and then, you know, with with all the with all that chaos going on and, and the negative temps and everything, we still managed to rescue seven people from dying frostbite, had to medevac to a hospital, that kind of thing. But still, like, these people are alive because there were Border Patrol agents out there being vigilant and working. Yeah. So uh, a side note, um, if you guys haven't watched the podcast with former Assistant Chief Cliff Gill, Jason, the Chief Owens, uh, interviewed Cliff Gill, who was very passionate about uh, recognizing our people better. So this is one of these instances where – Inarguably, this is above and beyond the call of duty. I mean, they literally, there weren't necessarily bullets flying at them, right? But they take their life in their own hands and they set out in, a, in an environment where they can't see their nose in front of their face to find and rescue people at their own high, high risk. So this is the type of program where we talk about resiliency and just what what people generally are driven by in today's environment, it's not necessarily money. It's not necessarily time off. It's in some instances, it's just really a, a thank you. And this is one of those those examples where um, we can recognize formally these folks for for going above and beyond the call of duty. Yeah, and they're absolutely going to be you know the ones I just spoke about. They're absolutely going to be recognized. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, the deputy chief of the patrol called and, and said, hey, are, are you guys going to be recognized? Absolutely, chief. You know, yeah, well, there you go. Uh, so, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll be recognizing them. Uh, I won't speak about what, what, the, sure. what the medal is, but sure. they'll, they'll be getting medals. It's a general frame, yeah, though, right? They, they, we, we, we take recognition of, of the, the values that we espouse and that we try and still, and oh, by the way, they start right here at the Border Patrol Academy, we take the recognition of those things very, very seriously. Do we get it right every single time? No. Are there people in our past who have not been recognized for true valor and 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 things like that? Absolutely. But we can always continue to get better, and, and we will. And we can fix our mistakes. I, you know, there's uh, there's an agent uh, several years back before I was the chief of Grand Forks, and and uh, he got in a shooting and, and did some, you know, he saved saved lives. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we're, we're putting him in, uh, you know, for previous, you know, he's already retired from the Border Patrol, but we're, yeah. we're working on getting him a medal. Right. So, you know, it's just takes time for some of those. So shout out to uh, former Chief Gill there, Assistant Chief Gill. Uh, thanks for the work that you uh, have done and the work that you continue to do. We, we definitely appreciate it. And that legacy will be carried forward with the recognition of our employees. So I want to talk to you. You mentioned you're now in Grand Forks, mm -hmm. but I want to talk a little bit about how you got there. So you go, and, and again, this is not unique necessarily to you. Uh, I talked to Chief Scudder about this, uh, Chief Landrum about this, Jason, Chief Owens and I have talked about this. We're all part of this Department of Homeland Security uh, Senior Executive Service Candidate Development Program, otherwise known as DHS SCS CDP, right? Um, it's a one-year kind of academic environment where we get, you know, we get broadened and educated on uh, how to be an executive how to do that properly. There's a, there is a reward at the end of that program with, with a certification, non-competitive certification for the selection of SES anywhere in the government. But within that, and you've heard me talk about it, we talked about this developmental assignment idea. So we were going back to broadening. You did your 120 day or so developmental assignment as the acting deputy federal security director with the Transportation Security Administration, otherwise known as TSA, at George W. Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston, Texas. Tell me a little bit about that assignment, what you gained out of it, what you did, and what you gained out of it. Uh, you know, it was it was so neat to see how another agency, uh, you know, does things, a lot of things the same and a lot of things very different. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, they got some value of, of me being there to be able to say, you know, some different programs and things to, like, kind of encourage and, and it was funny, a few years after, there were some ideas that I kind of pitched and that kind of thing where I would get calls back, you know, hey, I just wanted to, or an email back and say, hey, just let you know, we, we finally did this thing you were talking about or whatever the case may be. Uh, so that was a great feeling. Uh, but it, it was, you know, I was the one that gained the most out of it, you know, um, you know, only being there for, you know, what was it four months, yeah, you know, 20. so uh, just, you know, I, I gained so much and, and you know, Again, more more partnerships, more friendships. You know those those people that I can call now. You know if I need information on, hey, how does TSA run this? You know, yeah. we start we start uh, worrying about uh, Afghanistan Afghanistan folks coming over to particular airports and they're running through TSA and CBP and these kind of things. There's people you can call. You know because right. you know we didn't expect this to happen and now <laughs> we got these phone calls that we can make and stuff. So it's you know, anywhere you can go and develop partnerships and friendships. I mean, it's just that stakeholder engagement is just right. is huge. And it's paying dividends for you now in your current role right. as the chief of Grand Forks, where, again, the, the development of relationships is how business gets done. 
Yeah. Right. You don't have, you know, three or four thousand border patrol agents at your disposal with high volume of migrants crossing the border every single day. You got to work differently in a different space with different people. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just when I when I say stakeholders, it's not just the, you know, the sheriff's office sure. or the, the or the city police or RCMP on the other side, you know, with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or CBSA at the at the ports. Um, you know, all those partnerships are, are so important, but also the community itself. Right. And so the eyes and ears of what's going on in a community, just being able to, you know, the farmer that lives right there on the border, he knows what's what's different, what's going on different. You know, it's, it's um, you know, he's 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 working on his tractor. He's in his on his porch sipping coffee, whatever, whatever he does, like he knows what's different. And, and he's been there his whole life and he, he knows that something's different. And so they can call us or they can call our partners who we have great relationships with. And our partners will tell us, hey, Border Patrol, we need help over here. Or you might want to go check this out and investigate this. And we might miss it. Right. But we might find a backpack with with some information in it, and then we can start an investigation and that kind of thing. And so it's it's uh you know those those partnerships that stakeholder engagement it's just it's just uh it's huge and it's it's just a must have on the northern border. Yeah, so I think it's a natural segue into why we're here today, the What's Important Now podcast. So, Chief, I'd like to give you an opportunity to maybe uh, tell us or tell the audience um, maybe the top two, three, four things that, uh, that are on your mind and what's important to you now as the chief of the Grand Fork sector? So, you know, I, I know I talk a lot about stakeholder engagement, huge. I won't, I won't hit on that more, but just uh, it's for all those reasons that I've already mentioned, it's, it's, it's top of my mind. Um, you know, we're, we're detailing agents down to the Southwest border. Um, there's less border patrol agents on the Northern border, that kind of thing. And, you know, and so those, those partnerships are, you know, paying off more and more, you know, and so it's important. Uh, secondly, I would say innovation, right? And you'd mentioned earlier that, you know, the best ideas come from the agents and it's, it's true. There's, there's no way around that. It's just, uh, we've got to, we've got to listen. And so a message to all the leadership out there is, you know, we listen to our folks, you know, they have great ideas, um, you know, and we can't, you know, make everything happen. So, you know, we got to pick and choose which ideas we go with, but, but I just, Innovation is, you know, it's the path forward for us to, to, you know, solve our problems. And we're, we're the agency that, you know, lastly, I'll say tradition, but our tradition is to get things done. We just make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so lastly, you know, tradition, just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so proud to be a part of this organization. And uh, so, you know, I, I want to see our values, you know, uh, we have traditions and, you know, whether we're in black or tan boots, that's that's not the tradition I'm talking about. It's the tradition that, you know, wherever where I go, whether I'm a board patrol agent or a supervisor or a chief, I'm treated like family. You know, I, you know, I get to some place and, and people, you know, everybody, all the board patrol there, CBP there, they, you know, do you have everything you need? Is everything okay? You know, what do you need? Schools for your kids and uh, you know, whatever the case may be, like people have my back, you know, and, and, and so I just always cognizant of that, want to return that always. I want to be a part of this family. I'm so proud. And that's, I think the hardest part for retirement for any of our agents yeah. is, or for any of us is, is just, you know, feeling like, you know, they're, we're always a part of the family, but man, not seeing your family every day. Yeah. Right. And that's, um, you know, love my 
family with my wife, my kids. They're all grown up now out of the house, which I recommend empty nesting to anybody. <laughs> it's been great. Well, thanks my for wife, that. Yeah, my wife and I love it. You'll get there someday. It's a blink of an eye. Yeah. Uh, but really just, just the, the tradition of, of family, the Border Patrol treating each other, you know, because, you know, the, the other tradition of, of just being the agency that gets stuff done. Yeah. I mean, you can just look at what's going on on the southwest border right now, and Border Patrol is just getting stuff done. You know, we're, we're, you know, we're taking agents from the northern border and taking them down there and doing that. I mean, just we don't take no for an it. We, we, we don't settle for, for mediocrity. We, yeah. we're, we're just experts, and we, we just get it done. No matter what the case is, we get it done. And so that's a strong tradition that I'm very proud of, but also the family piece, right? We all treat each other like family. We're there for each other in the good times and the bad times. We're always looking out for each other, and uh, I just want to see that keep to continue to grow. Yeah, that's uh, I couldn't think of three better things uh, from your perspective, uh, for sure. And thank you for that, and I appreciate those those messages. Uh, I will take the opportunity on the heels of that, talking about family and tradition specifically, and I don't want to get too far ahead out of uh, Chief Ortiz, our chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, but for anybody doing math. Coming up on our centennial anniversary, all right? Very so exciting. we are coming up on our hundred-year anniversary. This is a huge milestone, yeah. and for an organization as young as we are, we are, if nothing, if not steeped in tradition, in family. Um, we do have a, a working group uh, put together, comprised of a chief patrol agent from the academy, me, uh, a chief from the uh, coastal environment a chief from the northern border, and, and it's being led right now by Chief Chavez, who's the chief in El Paso. Um, but the, the, the brilliance of the group that uh, Chief Chavez put together is it is wrought with family, former chiefs, yeah. um, people who are deeply involved in the family networks of this organization, the, the, the true heart and soul of our organization, those people that represent our families are involved in this working group too. So more to come on that. Please stay tuned for updates on the centennial celebration that we are planning uh, on behalf of the entire U.S. Border Patrol to celebrate our 100th year uh, of existence from 1924 to uh, 2024 and hopefully another couple hundred to come. So I will give you the floor once more, Chief, before we close out. Uh, we talk a lot about literally from day one. I, I When I EOD or enter on duty a class, I talk to them on day one about uh, what Honor First is. And one of the messages I give to them is it's a motto, right? And it literally means something different to everybody. And that's kind of the beauty of it. But you don't have to necessarily you know, tell everybody what Honor First means to you and that's, that's the motto. It's just the, the, the one hit, honor first. And we all know that it means something to somebody. So I'd like to hear your take on what honor first means to you. Uh, so a combination of uh, pride, tradition, and integrity. Yeah. Uh, you know, the key things I've hit on already. Uh, but, you know, when I think of somebody that's honorable, they have integrity. You know, mm-hmm. when I think of honor in any other, you know, thing, I, you know, like a, a kind of a military being from the army, you know, I, I think of tradition, you know, and honoring that. Um, so I, I would say, you know, and I'm very proud of those things. So I throw those three words together is, is pride, tradition, and integrity. Yeah. Chief, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for uh, your graduation comments. 
uh, for class 1179 this morning. They're off probably running towards the southwest border right now, literally. Um, but again, thank you for making the trek out to Artesia, New Mexico from Grand Forks. I, I know that that trip was not easy. Um, I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, I'm enjoying the weather here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a little warmer here. Yeah. So and thank you again, our listening audience, for tuning in to the latest episode, episode three of season two of the What's Important Now podcast. Honor first. Thank you.